The pool of candidates for U.S. president continues to fill up. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Wednesday, June 7th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, the Dakota political junkies discuss who has hats in the ring and what that means for the front runners. We'll also look at the debt ceiling deal and its political consequences. Trevor Jones joins the program with an update on the Summit Carbon Solutions Pipeline Project. Then, pretty peonies and how to plant, propagate, and appreciate them. Plus, the music returns to the Levitt Shell in Sioux Falls, and it features a full roster of local artists as well. We'll get to know the Rainbow Chorus and talk about music, pride, and gathering on the lawn. By the way, there is also a live stream. We are broadcasting today from SDPB's Kirby family in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. The war in Ukraine rages on, and some of the battlefield is underwater. Dr. Tim Shorn joins us with an update. Tim Shorn is the coordinator of international studies and a professor of political science at the University of South Dakota. He's with me now from SDPB's Vermilion Studios on the campus of USD. Professor Shorn, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about this dam burst and what we know so far, and there's much that we don't know, about the flooding. Well, uh, tens of thousands of people are being evacuated. We're looking at a huge ecological disaster, uh, not just because of the flooding, but because of pollution that comes along with certain areas being inundated with water. And of course, what we're also seeing is finger finger pointing uh, that the Ukrainians are obviously blaming the Russians. The Russians are saying that the Ukrainians did did this themselves. Um, In some ways, it follows the same pattern as uh, the explosion uh, at the Nord Stream gas pipeline, where both sides blame the other. Um, I think this points to a real change in the nature of the war and the likelihood that uh, significantly worse is about to come. All right. So I don't like where that's going, because in my imagination, that means the combatants... Putin's Russia are going to be willing to do things that are against international law, that are more distasteful to the international community? Like, what are you getting at there? Well, uh, we've seen from the beginning that uh, the Russians do not feel compelled to follow uh, the international laws of armed conflict, that we have seen indiscriminate attacks on civilian areas, that we have seen apartment buildings targeted. and there has been no regard whatsoever for Ukrainian civilians. Putin's attitude is, if I can't have Ukraine, I am going to leave um, something that is simply destroyed. And so I think it's clear that Putin is simply going to operate from the best from the best way that he can, a scorched earth policy. And that means that no point or no area in in Ukraine, no person in Ukraine is safe from uh, indiscriminate attacks. Uh, Putin is too far in at this point to acknowledge that this is not winnable because then he has to explain that 200,000 Russian men died for for no reason whatsoever. And so he's he's simply got to keep pushing forward, pushing ahead. We know that he cannot win military versus military, but what he can do is leave parts of Ukraine uninhabitable or destroyed, and that's what he's willing to do. 
Does how this appears to the international community matter at all to him? We already know that he has been charged with war crimes. We you know, have seen the influence of China on and, and France on trying to broker some kind of peace deal, or at least you know, speculation that they could. What does this kind of action do to a, a diplomatic exit ramp? I, I don't think there is an, a diplomatic exit. Uh, short of President Xi of China delivering a very blunt message to President Putin that this has to come to an end, this will not come to an end. That the only country that may hold any sway whatsoever over Russia would be China. And President Xi does not seem to be willing to throw uh, Putin under the bus just yet. I don't see any diplomatic um, movement that's going to be uh, uh, really worthwhile uh, for the next few months, if ever, that this is probably going to have to be won on the battlefield somehow, or um, something happens to, to President Putin. Uh, At home, yeah. So that's, well, that was going to be my next question about the Russian people. How much information do they have? And what, in your understanding, is their skepticism about the information they're getting from the Kremlin? They probably understand that they're not getting the whole truth, but as long as they weren't being affected personally, for example, seeing the bodies come home to their individual village, community, uh, neighborhood, they could pretty much ignore what was happening. Additionally, with the recent drone strikes that attempted to hit uh, Moscow, the war is also coming home to, to roost there. Kind of think of the bombings of Berlin or Tokyo, where all of a sudden the Germans and the Japanese understood that uh, this war was going to be nearer than they, they had expected. So I think the Russian people are also, at this point, too far in to, to expect any change, that the only thing that can possibly change what is occurring in the Kremlin is um, perhaps military leaders or other civilian members of the government saying, oh, we're not winning, this has to stop. But too many of them have sold their souls to Putin. Uh, their power, to a great extent, depends on him remaining in power. And so I'm not sure that we can expect much to happen er, uh, domestically either, which is why we seem to be in this kind of a sausage grinder of a war right now where it's going to continue and continue unless the West fully backs Ukraine and, uh, you know, starts moving equipment in more quickly and perhaps even, even Western forces. But it doesn't appear that any country has the uh, the stomach for sending their own soldiers or, or air forces into Poland. So we're going to remain at a kind of a, a bloody status quo for the foreseeable future. So the notion of a Ukrainian counteroffensive, how does that play into this? Was this just a nice headline? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, we we aren't sure. Everyone expects some type of Ukrainian counteroffensive, but Ukraine is now facing the types of problems that Russia was facing earlier. New recruits who are untrained, sometimes a shortage of equipment, you cannot uh, put together a meaningful counteroffensive if you have untrained forces who are not accustomed to working together and are not fully versed in the uh, the weaponry that they are using we can't expect anything to succeed if that's what ukraine is going going in with and i would fully expect that is what ukraine has right now yeah
And and the Russian troops in the places where they hold, they have to be fairly dug in. You know, you mentioned trench warfare. Uh, those positions have to be very hard to dislodge at this point. Am I wrong? That That is correct. And okay. when you look at what military strategists would tell you, that to carry out an offensive action that you tend to, you normally need a, a three to one advantage. And that would also mean an advantage perhaps in air power, in artillery. And I'm not sure at this point that Ukraine has that. And Ukraine cannot afford to move forces into um, a battle that they, that they don't have a likelihood of winning, um, that they are going to be running short on, on, on soldier power, manpower as well. So one more question, and that's about Ukrainian President Zelensky. Um, he has been popular. He has been, you know, at, at college graduations, you know, zooming in. At what point in this does his star begin to fade? And by star, I don't mean he's a celebrity or an influencer, right. but the work that he is doing on behalf of his country's independence. When does that? When do people get tired of that and uh, turn away? And that's an interesting question, and it's something that we face even with humanitarian catastrophes. When do people start to to get exhausted yeah. and fatigued. Yeah. And I think that, that that's something that is probably approaching, but it's it's geared less towards Zelensky himself and more about the war. The Zelensky is in some way the uh, you know personalization, the human manifestation of the battle for Ukraine. And so as people become fatigued with the war or supporting the Ukrainians, they become fatigued with Zelensky. Um, that it's not Zelensky first, it's 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 what's happening in Ukraine. And he is, you know, from, from my viewpoint, he is, he is playing the cards best uh, possibly that he can, dealing uh, based on what he has, has been dealt, that you know, I think probably there are some in the West who would like him to just disappear because then it would be easier for them to ignore what's going on in Ukraine and they could go about their business. And I think Zelensky realizes that as well, that he has to stay out in front. He has to stay uh, on the TV screens. He has to stay in the media to put pressure on Western leaders not to simply forsake Ukraine. Uh, the question becomes, when do leaders just decide that this is not a battle that they feel like supporting anymore, and they, they pull the plug on, on, on support for Ukraine, uh, at which point then we just end up with a quagmire for years to come. Mm. All right. Tim Shorn is coordinator of international studies and a professor of political science at the University of South Dakota. Later in the hour, we're going to talk with our Dakota political junkies about the debt ceiling compromise and that uh, brings up issues about spending and that support of, uh, you know, Ukraine as well. So more on that later in the hour. Dr. Shorn, thank you, as always, for being here. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. A new pipeline project is in the works for the five-state region. Summit Carbet Solutions is the company proposing the CO2 pipeline. Well, we recently spoke with South Dakota landowners, those who are dissatisfied with their dealings with the company. Today, we welcome Trevor Jones. He's the Regulatory Affairs Manager at Summit Carbon Solutions, and he's with me on the phone. Trevor, welcome. Thanks for being here. 
Good afternoon, Lori. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I want to start with uh, giving you an opportunity to respond. Certainly, Summit Carbon Solutions has made several agreeable handshakes with landowners across the state, but we also talked to some on our airwaves who said this has not been a company that they have enjoyed dealing with, and they have a loss of trust there. So talk to me a little bit about the importance of those relationships and from your perspective, how you think some of those conversations are going. Yeah, those conversations continued, and I think continue on uh, this very day and, and into the future. Uh, just real quick, you know, we partnered with over 2,800 landowners. We signed 4,500 easement agreements, accounting for 1,400 miles of our proposed pipeline. And uh, that's of the 2,000 miles within the five-state region. So we're moving at a good clip. We like where we're at. Uh, certainly, there's those detractors out there that any large-scale project's going to run into, and, and we hope to continue to work with them and hopefully uh, get them uh, signed up as well. What have you learned about what you're doing well? Like, I really, like on the ground, when you're talking to people, where do you think um, you've been effective and where do you think you have work to do? How can you have some of those conversations more effectively? Oh, yeah, I think uh, there's always work to be done and, and trying to get to those. Um, unfortunately, there's some misinformation out there and whether it's intentional or not, it's, it's hard to combat that in, in the corner coffee shops of those little towns. And I think, I think that's where we're making progress is try to get really good factual information out there about their project, about the easement, about how that landowner, he can negotiate or she can negotiate with our land team to help what's best for them and their property. And then that continue on to have the, the construction of the pipeline go forward. Uh, one thing we like about pipelines, unlike other infrastructure projects, it doesn't take that land out of production. You know, once we get the pipeline in the ground, those landowners can use that the ground just as they used it before. Tell me a little bit about um, the public good of this project, because that is another criticism. That this is not a public project; it's a private company, and therefore, some of these rules don't apply. How do you explain to people the challenges that they bring to you? about this not being for the public good? Well, I think if you look across the landscape of the United States, and if I, I'll quote the numbers correctly, Laura, I think there's 2.1 million miles of pipelines in the United States and over 2,000 different corporations own and operate those pipelines. So the majority, the great majority of your pipelines throughout the United States are owned by private corporations just like we are private and public corporations, I should say. So rarely does the government own a pipeline. And in regards to um, the second part, we're, again, trying to do is educate those individuals out there that even though we are privately owned, the number one focus on any pipeline is to make sure it's safe and operate safely over the lifetime of the project. Another comment made by landowners on this program was about uh, litigation before this project has been permitted by the PUC. How would you respond to that challenge? Well, I think going back to the other question, too, is I think if, if you look at the law, you know, the statutes that are in place here in South Dakota, you know, CO2 is has been defined as a commodity in the statute and it has been reaffirmed by, I think, three different judges in our state that CO2 is a commodity and it is allowed to be access those statutes regarding the public good. And so we could discuss that piece, but in the law, the statute 
makes it clear, and I'd also argue, too, if you talk through the 32 ethanol plants I think we partner with, we might be even up to 33 with our latest signing of new gen energy out of Marion, South Dakota. I mean, they would talk about how it is a public good and how it keeps the ethanol industry viable, allows them to sell their product in low-carbon uh, markets, and also keeps those employees, obviously South Dakota citizens in this case, employed and good uh and good, happy taxpayers. And, and to the question about litigation before permitting. Well, that's a you know, that's the unfortunate part of things of where eminent domain and, and those type of um, unfortunate dealings that we have to go through. But again, we just follow the law, and there's a statute in place where we can you know, access that portion of the statute and, and move forward. Obviously, fundamentally, it comes down really to the ethanol industry and trying to keep it critical to our economy. Um, right now, producers are by far the top purchaser of corn in the United States in the process of helping support strong commodity prices and higher land values. If the ethanol industry falters, the egg economy will as well. So we don't want to use those statutes, and we look forward to working with any landowner to avoid that part of the process, but it is there for a reason. Yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit about setbacks, and then I know you're busy, so I'll let you go. But um, every county has their different requirements for setbacks, and some are revisiting this conversation again. What is a safe setback from buildings in your estimation? Well, setbacks are already set by the federal government. These uh, pipelines, as you know, are extensively regulated by both federal and state levels. So that will include the be the setback portion that you often hear a little bit about. Uh, so the safe setback, is, as far as FIMS is concerned, is 50 feet uh, regarding pipe that's buried to a three-foot depth. So we follow what the standard is set by FIMSA. They've been monitoring and regulating pipelines for decades. Uh, they know the research behind these type of uh, hazardous material pipelines. Again, there's 2.1 million miles of these pipelines throughout the United States, 5,000 miles of those are CO2 pipelines, and they're regulated by FIMSA. They determine the safety standards, whether it be setback or other activities. That's what we go by as what's already out there. And it's worked so far because pipelines are the safest way to transport any substance. It's documented. The data is out there. Uh, pipelines are the way to go if you're going to move some substance from point A to point B. So 50 feet is the federal minimum setback requirement from FEMSA. 330 feet is the recommended distance to evacuate in case of a leak. And that recommendation is also from FEMSA. So that's what we're hearing when people come forward. Minnehaha County, they wanted 750 feet. They did not get that. But that county is looking at that 330 feet sorry, as the recommended distance to evacuate. Yeah, and... Unfortunately, that decision by the Mayak on the Commission is, is obviously not what we or the ethanol industry wanted. It's, been, it's important to note that the first time the county, in the county's history that they put a setback in place for a pipeline. And there's 105 miles of hazard liquids pipelines in Minneapolis County already, and none of those have setbacks. Uh, the pipelines that are currently in place in Minneapolis County are flammable, explosive. And as you know, CO2 pipelines are neither. You know, when we carefully planned this project, you know, obviously much prior to this day, our goal was to meet all the rules in the place at the time. And at the time, there were no setbacks here in Minneapolis County and throughout the state as well. And so 
those how we plan the projects is just unfortunately that they keep moving the goalpost. Is there a setback that's a deal breaker to you? Like we can't come into that county because they said that setback. Is there a is there a deal breaking setback set by the people? Well, I think as I go back to it, you know, Sims has done an excellent job of monitoring and regulating pipelines for decades. And so we would always continue to follow their advice, and their advice is the number that's already out there. So to go, you know, against what FIMSA recommends is really going against what safety standards have, have been in place for decades and worked for years. And and so it, it'd be difficult for anybody to, to argue that the safety of pipelines is not there. And so why change when we know that uh, that it works well and it's worked well for many, many years? Okay, so one more thing, and I think because people are going to say, you know, FIMSA recommends that 330 feet in case there's a leak, and what I'm hearing you say is that these are safe. Tell us one more time why you feel there's not going to be a leak that would cause, is that what you're telling me, that it doesn't need to be 330 because you're just not going to have those kinds of leaks? I want to make sure that I just understand. Yeah, no, it's kind of confusing, so yeah. I don't, don't, don't I, I understand completely. No, what you have to look at is, so if you drive around just the city of Sioux Falls, you'll see pipelines strewn throughout the neighborhoods. And that's where, and those are obviously were, were, were constructed at the FINSA recommended setback. Now, the 330 that you reference actually comes from a NHTSA document, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. It's a NHTSA document that many law enforcement firefighter personnel will have in their vehicles. So when they see an overturned uh, semi-tractor trailer with hazardous material markings on it, they'll be able to quickly look up what that placard says on the particular um, vehicle. And what they do is with that booklet, that 330, that's where that recommendation comes from, is based on the placard, a law enforcement official would evacuate to that particular distance. And that particular document that was referenced, I believe you're talking about, is the 330 foot. So it's completely different because you're talking in an incident that was, you know, certainly occurred above ground. And as you know, all our pipeline is buried below ground. And actually the FEMSA recommended uh, uh, depth is three foot. We're actually going above and beyond that. Our entire footprint of our pipeline will be buried at four foot. Um, Trevor Jones is the Regulatory Affairs Manager with Summit Carbon Solutions. Trevor, nice to talk to you again. Thank you so much for the update. Thanks for talking to you, Lori. I appreciate it. Have a great day. That was Trevor Jones, Regulatory Affairs Manager with Summit Carbon Solutions. A correction to that conversation, Mr. Jones misspoke when he referred to the source of the setback guidelines for pipeline safety. The Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, that's known as FEMSA, recommends a 330 feet evacuation in case of pipeline leak. The FEMSA federal guidelines for minimum setback is 50 feet. More in the moment after the break on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The showdown over the debt ceiling is over, or at least paused, thanks to a compromise that left both political parties satisfied, (laughs) dissatisfied. Uh, But let's talk about the political implications of that deal. Our Dakota political junkies have their take. Plus, the field of 2024 presidential candidates is already ballooning. We'll talk about who is running 
and why. David Wiltsey and Lisa Hager are both associate professors of political science at South Dakota State University, and they're joining me from SDPB's Janine Basinger studio at SDSU. Professor Wiltsey, welcome. Thanks for being here. Good to be here. Professor Hager, welcome as well. Thanks. Good afternoon. Let's start with the debt ceiling and the deal. Winners, losers, um, how do you look at a bipartisan deal like this? Is that the right question to look for winners and losers? Um, Lisa, let's start with you. I, I think it's fine to look at it from that perspective of winners and losers. I have a feeling that maybe some members of both parties are walking away dissatisfied. You know, even your introduction to this topic kind of <laughs> hinted <laughs> at that. So, you know, I think it's it's fair to still use those terms, but I think some people probably have some, some pretty lukewarm feelings towards it. I think in terms of, of winners, you can maybe look at many of the programs or, or groups of people who were off the table, so we didn't have any cuts or whatnot to, you know, Social Security or Medicare and veterans were, were still protected. You know, in terms of folks who are looking for more cuts in various areas, you know, the, we didn't see that. This deal is a, is a lot of kicking the can down the road. Yeah, we didn't see that yet. Dave Wiltsey, what is the, the ripple effects of this compromise? I mean, we could spend two hours on that, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, top of mind ripple effects? Well, I think uh, kind of on the same uh, vein as what you talked about just before, winners and losers uh, and downstream effects of this, uh, two big winners here. Uh, one's kind of inside baseball, one's kind of outside baseball. Um, uh, Kevin McCarthy came out a winner in this, uh, not so much with the general public, but just within his party. He uh, managed to get this deal through and keep his position as speaker and not have someone, you know, put up a really, uh, you know, a, uh, confidence vote or whatever the technical term is for uh, a challenge from within the caucus. And that was one of the terms of his deal that he cut coming into office, that it, it would be much easier to make that kind of challenge. So the fact that it hasn't happened yet, good for him. Uh, when it comes to the larger picture, um, uh, Joe Biden is the clear winner here. Typically, the American people, they don't really parse out who's in control of either chamber of Congress. They don't think about these, um, you know, these inside games that are being played. They look at the overall results and they place the credit or the blame to the president and the president's party. Uh, so in the big picture, politically, I think uh, the president was uh, the clear winner here. Uh, a shutdown would have hurt him far more than it would have hurt uh, Speaker McCarthy or any of the uh, congressional leadership of either party. Yeah. Lisa, I think the term uh, Dave is looking for there is motion to vacate. At least that's what I looked up this morning because <laughs> I don't have that top of mind because it feels very Great Britain to me. Help yeah, me help Lisa's the, <laughs> she, she's the congressperson. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. And, even, and even then, you know, those are things we just don't see very frequently. You know, right. that's yeah. when we're seeing those conversations is when there's dissension in the party over who should be the speaker in, in the first place. I mean, yeah. that was unprecedented in and of itself what we were seeing yeah. back in January. 16 yes. rounds or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, so, so right. many. So no, the nothing we're used to, used to yeah. here in the U.S. Yeah, so the deal is, and this was maybe the first big test of that, which is it's mm -hmm. very easy to, to get McCar Speaker McCarthy out of there. They didn't do that. And I'm just wondering about lingering tensions 
uh, for the next vote. We're already seeing, you know, Freedom Caucus members like n- not vote for something that's mm-hmm. just to, to prove, to show that they have a strong voice still. What happens next, Lisa? I think what we're going to see is how a, a lot of these conversations are going to start bleeding into what our next topic is, which is the, yeah. the, the presidential election in terms of, you know, are we going to continue with four more years of President Biden and what that would mean for these budget conversations? Or are we going to possibly give someone else who's running from the Democratic Party a chance? Or are we going to go in the more Republican direction? And I think we're going to see a lot of commentary from members of the party in Congress kind of talking about what that means. Yeah. So Joe Biden said before he was elected, he wanted to make Washington work again. A big, juicy, bipartisan deal might be fitting his definition of making Washington work. But I don't know that that's a great campaign slogan (laughs) compared to some (laughs) of the other ones that we've seen. So let's talk about the Republican field. And um, there are some new entries to it. Dr. Wilsey, who's on deck so far? I mean... We don't oh, have time for all that. Well, Who's recently and noteworthy? Them, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, just within the last few days, we had uh, yeah. Governor Christie, Mike Pence, and Governor Borgham up in uh, North North Dakota uh, declare. And now I think we're up to around 10, 11 declared candidates uh, okay. last time I looked. So it is shaping up to be a pretty wide field, uh, very similar to what we saw in 2016 at about this time. Uh, so, you know, we are in store for another one of these, you know, potentially drawn out uh, nomination can- um, contest. And once again, it will be Donald Trump who's kind of sitting above the rest of the field. And each of these folks will try to take him down in whatever way they can. And in many respects, I think we're going to see largely a repeat of uh, what happened in 2016, unless something really big or catastrophic happens to the Trump campaign associated with one of these lingering indictments or something like that, which might possibly could remove him from the field. Uh, But I don't think this is the sort of contest Republicans really want to have at this moment. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how they coalesce around one or perhaps two of these uh, of this big field right now. um, If they're trying to put up, uh, you know, a a decent opposition to uh, uh, President Trump. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Hager, John Thune and Mike Rounds already coalesced around Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. Um, Does Pence, Christie, um, the North Dakota governor, does that matter to them or they've put their they put their chips on the table already? Right. Yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting, given the fact that we don't know what the entire field looks like. I take some of those endorsements as basically we're not interested in a nominee being Trump or DeSantis more than anything else. And so that's who they've chosen to throw their their weight around or weight behind at this point. So, you know, that I think will be another interesting thing as we see more endorsements come out. And even just as we see how various things play out as these candidates are appearing in in different places and are able to kind of get a sense of whether voters are are interested in supporting them or not. My gut reaction is that it's probably going to come down to, you know, Trump or DeSantis, but having some support from various senators can be helpful in 
propelling some of these other candidates along a little bit further than maybe they would get on their own. Yeah, and this is what we call the invisible primary in um, okay. in, in political science, where uh, the party elite is has always had an interest in putting forward as credible of a candidate as possible, one who has a degree of popularity, uh, both with the uh, mass electorate and uh, popularity within the um, office holders and other uh, elite of the party. And this is something that in most elections up until 2016, both parties have worked very hard to vet the field and actively find someone who can keep all the various corners and factions of the party happy. So I see this as a, you know, a, a, a very public and very important move um, by both of our senators in trying to have a hand in shaping the nomination and directing it towards uh, somebody who is pretty well equipped to speak to the different factions within the Republican Party. And Tim Scott, in many ways, is this person. He has credibility with uh, the Trump crowd. He has credibility uh, with evangelicals. He has credibility with uh, the more institutionally oriented Republicans. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a signal that our senators are sending and other senators and governors and representatives will be making these decisions as well. Dave Wiltsey and Lisa Hager, today's Dakota Political Junkies. Uh, they are associate professors of political science at South Dakota State University in Brookings. Dave, thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Lisa, thank you as well. Thank you. Let's take a moment now for land and the people who shape it. Tammy Basil is a fourth-generation Meade County rancher. She and her husband, Dallas, raise sheep and cattle near Union Center. That's a ranching community about 50 miles from Rapid City. Along with caring for livestock, Tammy continues a legacy. Like the women before her, she uses range management practices that improve the habitat for the wildlife who also call her ranch home. Take a listen. We have a lot of really strong-willed women in my history. Well, it goes back to 1917 when my grandmother was the homesteader. And she took the homestead out, patent out next to her dad. And at that time, there was no fences. And she, she raised sheep and horses for the military. And actually, it's kind of cool, her husband was a homesteader a few miles north of here. And he had to move to her homestead. I married the neighbor boy. And so we have, for many years, it was Dallas and I, and we kind of had his and her places. And just like history repeated itself, my husband had to move to my place. <laughs> uh, what I learned from my, the strong women and, and men in my family was the importance of liking your own company. You know, if you, if you like your own company, you can live in the middle of nowhere. And when you like your own company, loneliness is not a problem. And you can really enjoy the, all that the beauty of the prairie can bring. I take great pride that much of my property has never seen steel. It is native sod. So when you think about pollinators, how important pollinators are. Well, when the spring, when the prairie wakes up and the grains come, you have flowering plants that feed pollinators. Well, does grazing have a lot to do with pollinators? Yes. Because if you're properly grazing, your soils are healthy. 
and you are getting diversity in your plants and your species which draw the pollinators, provide great habitats. If you have bunch grasses where the, sh the birds can raid their eggs, if you have dugouts and water sources where you can have a variety of ducks and geese and all that wildlife, it really comes together. And when you, when you, in life, I think about how often if you take care of the smallest things, when I think about feeding my livestock, if you think about the rumen bugs, if you make the rumen bugs happy, the whole animal is happy. If you take good care of your soil health, you get water and sunshine, you, the plants will take care of you. You can find and share this story on our website, sdpb.org news. More in the moment is coming up next. We'll talk about pretty peonies and how to propagate them. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Gardeners across the state are seeing the vibrant pinks and reds and whites of peonies as they come into full bloom this June. If you aren't seeing that in your own garden, well, Eric Helland is here with some tips to kick your green thumb into high gear. Eric is president and owner of Landscape Garden Centers, and he is with me from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio with your Peonies Care Guide. Welcome. Hi, how are you? I am doing well. Good. How's your peonies? They're not in full bloom, but they're budding. Are they? What they're, colors? I, just pink. I just pink? planted okay. them last fall. Okay. So yeah. that's our first question. Yeah. Should they be in full bloom right now? Or are they? Does yeah. it when you planted them or the maturity of the plant? That's the time of the year. Okay. So like the ones that we have at our house, very warm area where the ground warms up faster mm -hmm. than probably where yours is. And this has got full sun throughout, you know, it's up against a building. So when you have that solar heat, that really kicks them into high gear okay. and they start to grow and bloom sooner. Okay. And then you have ones that would be outside farther away, not next to a structure, they'll probably bloom a little bit later. Yeah, mine are back along the fence line. So any day now, but they, yeah. do, they do look like they're doing pretty well. They're holding up. How often do you water them? Um, I'll, I hardly ever water them. Okay. But... With when we're going through a drought like this, I'd probably give them a shot of water, yeah. um, because they need to have some type of um, water when it, they're especially they're blooming. What will happen is when you give them water now, they're collecting everything and they're going to start putting energy into the root system for next year's blossoms. Okay. And so that's kind of what you're doing is you're basically putting stuff into the system so it can sustain and also start storing. How many different colors of peonies oh are gosh. there now? There's so many. Yeah. Um, there's yellow ones too. Oh, And nice. then kind of, uh, yeah, so there's so many different colors. But most of the ones that everybody remembers from Grandma's house is yeah. that pink, that lavender, and the white. Uh, the foliage, it's a very, very tough, tough plant. It's good for the landscape um, because it's, it is so tough. It's, it's kind of resilient to a lot of pests and diseases, uh, clean foliage. Um, it does, it's, people think it doesn't bloom that long, but I mean, usually you can get close to three to four weeks out of it. Okay. Which is a perennial. Yeah. yeah. How close can you put them together? I have a little uh, yappy dog yeah. behind okay. me. 
little chihuahua. And can I make a just a fence of a peonies? Fence of, absolutely. That I can... <laughs> yep. Yep. Two to three. Yep. Two to three feet. I mean, and because they'll uh, get as wide as they're allowed, and they'll just keep okay. on growing. The other thing you can do is they're very easy. They're, they don't like it, but they're very easy at dividing them and divide those and the, divide them in the fall. Where you just take off a piece of the side of it, and then make sure you plant it in a similar situation as it is in. And then make sure it's at the same depth. So don't plant it any deeper and don't plant it any higher. So just make a mark, <clears throat> dig a hole. All right. So you want more move. peonies, you can just propagate the ones yep. you have. But where do you cut them? Just be more, so you be basically, more specific so about that. So if yeah. you have a circle, uh-huh. right? Imagine a circle. Now we're going to take a, a pizza pie out of that of a quarter. So that's what you're going to do is you're going to um, just basically take your shovel and cut, cut out a quarter of that circle and dig down and grab the root mass, and you'll start to wiggle it. Once you wiggle it out of there, then move it into your new. Oh, hole. I would have cut from the top. That's is not that, so. Work. That's another way of propagating, which was we were going to bring that up at the, maybe the next time about propagating. Okay. Well, tell me a little bit. So, okay. Okay. Well, because I'm not going to do that yet. Yes, we're not going to. But this question I think is relevant. If I want yep. to make cuttings of my peonies to bring inside oh, or to yeah. give to someone, how do I make sure I'm doing that in a way that's good for the longevity of the plant as long as nice for my vase? Yeah. Okay. So just find the bud right before it starts, right when it's just about ready to emerge. Really, so you can kind of see the color. Uh-huh. Cut it because then that will last the longest in your vase. When you've cut them now, like when they're in full bloom, they're not going to last that long. And all of a sudden, they're just going to fall. Those le- petals and the flower, the petals of the flower are just going to fall off faster. Okay. Um, so it will do a gradual open and then probably hold tighter longer inside. Uh, will, they, will there be another bud then, or is that it? So for then that plant? next year. Not till next, next year. year. Yep. So you're making a choice year. then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. But take it inside, share uh, it. Mine get little ants on them. Is that yep, like a perfect. thing? Yep. Because I don't want to bring that in. Oh, ants what? won't kill you. I don't want them um, in the so, house, though. Yeah. I don't mind so them on the... So the ants are very beneficial because all they're doing is they're going up because the uh, peony actually excretes a honeydew substance, okay, sugary substance, okay. and the, and they're just kind of a... And so then the ant climbs up there, takes the honeydew off, and then it... In theory, has the ants grow underneath and create aeration because they live down underneath the peony? Remember Disney? Yeah. Ants? <laughs> That's exactly what we're doing, except for it's underneath a peony. I like that. Yeah. I can live with that. Okay. Still don't want them in my kitchen, though. Yeah. That's, well, yeah. I mean, you can't well, blame me for our, that. Yeah, All right. Any true. final thoughts? Is it too late to plant them now? No, no, no. Okay. You can keep on planting until the ground freezes, and oh. we won't be talking about freezing ground for quite a quite some time. If you plant them now, are they going to bloom in July or August? Well, usually you're going to get things that are just blooming or finishing up blooming, okay. but now then you're going to be planting it and you're working on the root system for it to establish itself. Okay. So then next spring, you're going to have awesome blooms. All right. We'll get on it. Eric Helland with Landscape Garden Centers. Thanks so much for stopping by. All right. Thank you.
The Rainbow Chorus is making its debut this Pride Month, and they are going all out. The Sioux Falls-based chorus is an inclusive space for the LGBTQ plus community and their allies. It is the first of its kind for our area. Their inaugural performance was this past weekend during the Sioux Falls Canaries Pride Night. They perform again at their Coming Out concert tomorrow. Today, Colin Taphorn is with me in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio. He's the board president of the Rainbow Chorus and one of the founders. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really wonderful being here and getting the word out about our new organization. Yeah, so you're you're at the Levitt Shell. Yes. As one of the local acts this weekend. The opening act on Friday. So come a little early, Mm -hmm. get your your place on the lawn. Which it fills up quickly. So you, I mean, you want to be there early anyway and to also have great music. Right. Win-win. The food trucks are there early, the beer tents there early. Um, You get the best seats and you get the rainbow chorus. Uh, yeah. What more can you ask for? Tell me a little Nothing. bit about where this idea came from and some of the origins and, and beginning conversations. Well, even the beginning conversations, well, okay, how far back do I want to go? <laughs> I mean, there have been conversations among friends about how, you know, this is something that we think that Sioux Falls would really benefit from and it's something that's lacking um, in our community. But really, just about January 1st of 2023, just a little over six months ago, we started going out on social media, kind of taking polls and and seeing if there was any interest. And surprise, surprise, there just was a lot of it. It was, yeah. it was really wonderful. If you grew up singing in choir or chorus in school, yes. it can be hard to find a place to keep singing as an adult. What is the... Um, the benefit of people who are not in like a high school chorus <laughs> to get together and keep singing. Uh, it's it's really just a shared community that's formed around a love of music and inclusivity. Um, it there's something just amazing. Um, almost it just puts chills down your spine when you're in a large group of people and you're singing together, and it just everything meshes together for once yeah. and it's it's been absolutely wonderful and our director Del Hubers oh he's just been a godsend and really amazing at taking this ragtag group <laughs> of, of individuals some of whom haven't sang uh since high school which yeah. is uh various lengths for for different members uh, of time ago so yeah. uh it's yeah it's been great yeah tell me about the repertoire what kind of music do you want to bring to audiences is there a focus you know, you think that there would be, um, but but not exactly. Especially starting off, um, the community's been really wonderful at helping us out, and there have been various organizations that have helped donate music for us, so that way sure. um, we don't have to buy our own. And so a lot of what we're singing right now is what we can get a hold of. <laughs> but, um, you know, just classics. There's yeah. um, True Colors, um, the music of the night from Phantom of the Opera, uh, bridge over troubled water, just good music. Um, some of it quite challenging music that yeah. has been a struggle, but yeah, yeah. Let's we'll talk about that no, way. We we'll talk about that too. Is that you know it's about joy and and community, mm-hmm. but also in a, in a day in an era, you know, we just had a couple of mental health conversations, like focusing on the arts. And then trying to improve, as long as it's not frustrating, but taking on something that's challenging. I mean, for a while there, I would think that the rest of the world falls away for a little bit. You know, like how many emails you have maybe doesn't matter when you're in rehearsal or when you're on the stage. 
No, you really have to focus on the moment. It's very meditative yeah. um, and, and relaxing that way. I completely agree with you. It's, it's kind of wonderful just being there and singing and searching for those notes. And I mean, originally our rehearsals were only an hour long. Yeah. And then we were thinking about all of this music we wanted to do. So um, uh, the director and I were kind of worried about asking people to stay later. So that way we mm -hmm. could get through all of our music. And so we said, well, what if, you know, what if maybe... We spent, you know, an hour and a half per rehearsal, per rehearsal, and everyone was like, "Oh yeah, we want to spend longer here." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I mm -hmm. love that. And for audience members, um, in a political climate that can be fraught, sitting mm -hmm. in the audience and in just enjoying a rainbow chorus, just enjoying the music—that's not a political statement, but it also kind of is. Where do you land on that? Well, the biggest thing that I wanted from this chorus was to be an inclusive place where everyone was welcome. And that shouldn't be a political statement, but it feels like so often it is. And honestly, with politics and the rest of it, I, I want to stay out of that for the most part. Like we're here to sing and provide an inclusive place for everyone. And I don't, really understand why that has to be political. This is yeah. just music and good music and singing together. Yeah, I like that. All right, details about the concert. It is coming up this weekend at the Levitt at the Shell, um, Thursday, June 8th, 7 p.m. Oh, no, oh, wait, no, that's Thursdays, the coming out concert. Yep, mm -hmm. yep Thursdays at First Congregational Church downtown, Sioux Falls. Okay, perfect. Yep. Any uh, final things you want to leave people with where they can find you? Facebook? Yeah, so okay. Facebook, just look up Rainbow Course of Sioux Falls. Or if you want to um, learn more about our upcoming schedules, we have a website, rainbowchorus.org. Yeah. Um, feel free to email us with a contact or, or look around that. Colin Taphorn, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank I you look so forward much for to the concert. Me. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Thanks for listening.